Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You'll also get access to ad-free versions of this podcast. We recently released a new bonus episode on Warner Brothers' ground-shaking shift in its digital release plans, and we have one in the can about Steve McQueen's Small Axe movie series for Amazon, which are getting some of the highest critic ratings of 2020. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. American movie theaters remain closed in some markets and open in others, but for safety's sake, and because it's where we're finding most movies these days, we're focusing on quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, I'm here with... Keith Phipps. Scott Tobias. And... Ah, why is there a seal in the fourth chair this week? What? That's Genevieve. Genevieve's uh, seal now. What do you mean now? We're more than 250 episodes into this podcast. She has never been a seal in any of the previous episodes. Well, technically, she isn't a seal. She's a selkie. You know, a mythical creature that can transform between seal and human forms. Ah, <laughs> uh, I think she'd prefer we didn't call her mythical. Sorry about that, Genevieve. Isn't it going to be difficult to get through this podcast with a bunch of the conversation devoted to barking noises? Eh, I have a new cat and a dog who doesn't much like her. I'm used to getting through my days with a lot of background barking noises. I was really kind of hoping for Genevieve's insight this week, though. Okay, tell you what, eventually she's going to have to resume human form to walk her dog. When that happens, she'll shed her seal skin and we'll hang on to it until we're done with the podcast. It'll be thematic. Besides, she's going to want to join in this conversation. Why particularly? Well, on December 11th, Apple TV Plus started streaming Wolfwalkers, the latest animated feature from Tom Moore, the Irish filmmaker behind the movies The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. Like those films, Wolfwalkers is based in Irish legend and Celtic design, with elaborate patterns woven throughout the spectacular visuals. It's a story about two girls who meet in the woods, one a wolfwalker who assumes the form of a wolf when she sleeps, and the other a recent arrival from England, the daughter of a single father tasked with wiping out the local wolves so the people huddled behind the walls in his town can rest easy. The dynamic, with a young girl losing her mother, struggling with her father, and striking out on her own in a world of shape-changers in mythology, immediately reminded us of John Sayles' 1994 movie, The Secret of Roan Inish, about a young girl navigating a different set of Celtic myths as she seeks her lost brother and learns about the shape-changer blood that runs throughout her family line. Got it. So this pairing, we're talking about Irish legends and fairy tale shapeshifters with The Secret of Rowan Inish this week and Wolfwalkers coming up next week. We'll be right back after this. Okay, will someone throw Genevieve a pail of fish long enough for us to get through the break in the keynote speech? It was a strange day. The air was very still, like it is sometimes before a storm. We, Jamie, sleeping in his cradle. It's like a dream that day. Why did we have to leave? They say the east is our future and the west is our past. The islands to the west of us. Look out there. That's Roan Inishgard, island of the seas. Love of the seas is sickness. 
And you two will come to grief for it. What the sea will take, the sea must have. He's a troubled soul. As if he's caught between earth and water. It was a seal that brought me here, he told him. Old stories told of such creatures luring ships onto the rocks and pulling sailors down into the drink. He saw a thing his eyes could scarce believe. Liam had seen a selkie. Neither chains of steel nor chains of love can keep her from the sea. Is this heaven, then, he said? No, lad, it's only... Morning-ish. Aye. Any story about selkies is almost certainly a story about loss. In the classic version of the Selkie fable, a man who lives and works near the sea, often a fisherman or sailor, sees a seal remove its skin and reveal itself as a beautiful woman so she can go dance on the shore with her sister seals by night. He steals her skin so she can't go back to her former shape, her family, or the sea, and she's compelled to become his wife, keep his household, and bear his children. Often these seal wives are described as mysterious and otherworldly, but also quiet and loyal, good housekeepers and mothers in ways you wouldn't expect a transplanted wild animal to be. But in most versions of the Selkie story, the seal woman eventually finds where her former fur is hidden and goes back to the sea for good, sometimes turning her children into seals and taking them away with her, sometimes abandoning them and her husband behind on the land. Like most fairy tales, this feels like a heavily symbolic way to express some real emotions people experienced in other eras. For instance, if they were given away to another clan in marriage by their family, and were expected to move away from their homes and kin to live among strangers for the rest of their lives. The fantasy of eventually getting their original selves back and escaping to freedom must have been compelling to women who found their new lives painful or lonely or unwanted. But John Sayles' 1994 movie, The Secret of Rowan Inish, expressly ties the feelings of loss and compulsion in Selkie stories to the feelings of loss and compulsion in so many other kinds of Irish stories. His film touches in passing on Irish settlers losing their home as the land they've claimed becomes inhospitable and difficult to inhabit. One couple loses their child to the sea in an obvious bit of symbolism for people who live in the dangerous, uncertain wilds. The settlers lose their native language as they're colonized and forced to stop using it. And the characters in the film are at risk of losing their home because they're entering a new era where people who survived World War II want to lose their heavy past memories and move on, regardless of who they uproot in the process. Irish stories are often about immigration and forced cultural shifts, about loss of history and culture, and about loss of freedom and peace. The Secret of Roanish acknowledges all this history briefly and in passing without dwelling too heavily on it. But it's also a warm-hearted children's fable about a young girl learning that her younger brother was washed out to sea as an infant and becoming obsessed with getting him back, especially when she learns he's alive and living among the seals on the island where she was born. Based on a novel by Rosalie K. Fry, The Secret of Roanish follows Fiona, played by Jenny Courtney. As her mother dies, her father drifts towards the bottom of a bottle, and she's sent off to live with her grandparents, Tess and Flynn. She and her young cousin Eamon form a bond, and she starts learning about her family history, about the family's selkie blood, about the island of Rowan Inish, which they all abandoned when she was younger, about Jamie's disappearance at sea, and much more. With Eamon's help, she starts returning to Rowan Inish to reclaim it, and to reclaim Jamie for her family. The Secret of Rowan Inish in a lot of ways feels like a significant departure for John Sayles, who started out with fiercely independent humanistic cinema like Return of the Secaucus 7 and the science fiction racial drama Brother from Another Planet, then achieved some of his highest profile work with the mining union drama Matuan and the Black Sox scandal drama Eight Men Out. His filmmaking career has been diverse, but it never before or again drifted into this particular realm of child-centric fantasy. It may help to know that the source book, The Secret of Ron Moore Scary, 
was a longtime favorite of his partner and producer, Maggie Renzi, and that he himself has Irish family roots, which was part of the decision to transfer the story from Scotland to Ireland. But even so, Rowan Inish goes to places none of his other movies go, with significant scenes built around animals and nature, and a child star carrying much of the emotional burden of the story. Maybe he never went back to this particular kind of filmmaking because the shoot was a challenge. Shooting with wild animals is enough of a burden without having to raise $5 million to produce a film on your own, and then having half your sets burned down by a drunken crew member right before filming. The unpredictable weather off the Irish coast was obviously also an issue, particularly with so many sequences that needed to be shot in rain, or fog, or on clear days, or at night. But while Sales tells interesting stories about the complications that hit the shoot, he never seems to be complaining. His thematic point in the film, he says, is that it's a fable that isn't about a chosen one who lucks into a magic power or a magic object to solve her problem. She gets what she wants through hard work, focus, and determination. Quote, I responded to the way that in a children's book that from the outside looked like a fantasy, there was a very kind of solid center of reality to it, he said in one interview. Quote, the children kind of prevail at the end, not by finding a secret passageway or a secret code word or a leprechaun coming and handing them something, but by hard work and faith and a commitment to living on this island for the rest of their lives. That's the deal that they've made with nature, unquote. That's pretty much how John Sales has always approached filmmaking, too. With Fiona's hard work comes a reconciliation with her younger brother. The rare case of a story about many different kinds of loss and separation that's also a story about reunion and completion. Like so many fables, Roninish comes with a happily ever after, but not an easily won one. And as much as Roninish feels like a departure for sales because of its place in a world of magic, it's also firmly grounded in the realism that's always a part of his stories. Quote, Nobody escapes. Even the magic has a price, so it's not whimsy. It's not escape from reality, he said in that same interview, talking about the Latin American tradition of magical realism and how it ties into the film. In the stories that interest him, quote, Nobody escapes the problem of life in their culture. I think it's very tied to an oral tradition, where your stories are not picked like at the supermarket from the media. They come from your life. They come from your experience. And so fantasy is not that different from reality. Fantasy is very much based on the natural world. First time he laid eyes on Bridget, she was leaving the church. And he was struck speechless with the sight of her. It's the shyness of an island boy. And she wasn't a worldly girl at all. But to Jimmy, any place off a Rowan Inish might have been Paris, France. <laughs> so there he is, making honey in his heart of her good looks. And meanwhile, she's just as struck. With him, a big, handsome, powerful lad, with eyes that melted all the girls. And she's in a hundred pieces, wondering what she could do to meet him. Did he speak to her? What did he say? Would you like to buy some fish, miss? <laughs> so uh, do any of you have a particular history with The Secret of Rowan Inish? Yeah, I do, for sure. I was, at this point, a John Sayles super fan. I was throughout <laughs> the 90s. You know, it was he was one of the filmmakers who every movie was an event, something I looked forward to. This came in the middle of a stretch of very good films by him. And then I kind of grew cold on him throughout the 21st century uh, you know and a lot of it had to do with these films becoming hard to get though i guess they're becoming a little easier to get some of it had to do with the fact that his films the films that he were was making were, were not as good as the ones that he was making in the 90s and then i had this kind of calcified belief that that his films were maybe not as 
cinematically dynamic as I might want them to be, which was maybe less of a problem for me in the 90s than it turned out in my snobbier later days. All of that said, (laughs) my thought at the time was this was a very nice movie and quite a surprising departure from what I'd expected any John Sayles film to be like. And then my thought now is like, this is a very nice movie and not that much of a departure from what I understand sales to be. I found it very humanistic, as you put it, very moving. I think it has a lot more integrity on a filmmaking front than I might have given it credit for before. I think you have a lot of really striking visuals here by Haskell Wexler, who is one of the really great cinematographers. I think it all holds up quite beautifully. What, what did everybody else think? Well, I think this movie will put that a whole I – mean, I kind of settled into the same idea that he was a writer first and, and, yeah. and, and visually not that interesting. And then I realized I just hadn't seen his films for a while because uh, this this will put that to rest real fast. <laughs> it's a beautiful-looking film. Mm-hmm. And Eight Men Out, which I watched recently too, is, is also – which is shot by Robert Richardson, also another really visually striking film with a lot of interesting ideas. And I feel like the editing in his films are is also really sharp as well. This is not There's not a kind of a wasted shot in this. It never loses its sense of rhythm. Um, I loved it. I was I was really happy to revisit it, and I I love that a lot of things you point out in the keynote are what make it so affecting. Which is it doesn't cheat. I mean, it's a it's a children's story. It's a film about children and magic, but it's like you said, everything comes like well, like he said, everything comes at a cost. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to me to think about this as a children's film in the context of seeing it for the first time now, which is what happened. This is my uh, first time seeing Secret of Rowan Inish, and it's actually, I'm ashamed to say, my first John Sayles film, although I'm going to chalk that up to that uh, up until recent unavailability that, that, that Scott mentioned, and not just my yeah, own, my own failures as a film goer. But yeah, I, I knew about this film by certainly by name, sort of a title that sticks with you. And I kind of have like a deep, like lizard brain memory of seeing uh, Siskel and Ebert review it back in the day uh, and at the movies. Two thumbs up, in case you were wondering. But I never actually seen it for whatever reason. But I I mean, I was in the the Target demo uh, when it came out, if you do think of this as a children's movie. But I also wonder how well it functions as a movie for kids because it's the answer to that yeah and i Uh. i I thought you might and and i definitely (laughs) i definitely want to hear your answer but uh before that i just want to say that like it reminded me a lot just sort of in its pacing and its sort of its energy of uh another film we did another very gentle children's film that we did for this podcast uh years ago at this point uh, the black stallion Mm -hmm. um and that's like a mode of movie that I feel you just don't get very often that's sort of like willfully and happily gentle and not particularly incident driven. Like as you said, Tosh, it's a movie about or I think Sales actually said it's a movie about storytelling. There are a lot of scenes where Fiona just like sits there and listens to someone tell a story. And the film is like very explicitly framed like around her perception as a listener. There, you know, there's a lot of shots from below. I'm thinking of like at the very beginning when she enters that bar and like all the adults' heads are cut off because we're like at her level. You know, there's a, a sense throughout this film of sort of 
I don't want to say adults lecturing, but just like, you know, being told stories. It's, it's like very much focus on the oral tradition. And that's lovely. And I, I, I like to see it. Um, I have a hard time imagining a kid in 2020 responding to it. But I'm hoping you're about to disabuse me of that notion, Keith. Well, let's put it this way. I, I watched both these films with my daughter. One was a big hit. It wasn't, it wasn't this one. But, you know, I, I, about halfway through, she said she, my daughter said she was confused. So we turned on the subtitles, which I think helped. Mm-hmm. But she stuck it out to the end, though. And I, and, I, and I thanked her for watching a film that wasn't like what she's used to, which is good. I think it might be. She's nine. So maybe for slightly older kids, or maybe it is. Maybe it's one of those films that's about childhood. That's, it's, you know, ostensibly a children's film, but it's actually really more for grownups. I don't know. But uh, I don't know. I was, I was enchanted by it again. That would be my interpretation of it. And I th- really feel like that was how it was released, too. I mean, this mm-hmm. was not, this is a film that was released in our houses just like any other John Sayles movie i don't think there was any great notion that this could cross over and be a hit with young children which is fine the black stallion was a hit in my household though so there is there's some difference there i guess which which one was the black stallion oh yeah that's a but that's another level that's that's a different thing I mean, The Black Stallion, it expressly, that's expressly a film about a child doing things that children would want to do. You know, Mm. it's about a child with complete freedom alone in the world who makes a very personal connection uh, with a giant, frightening, beautiful animal and gets to like roam the world with it. Like that's a solid childhood fantasy. This is a film about a girl who works hard to to, like thatch roofs and paint walls. Uh, This, this is a story about a young girl who spends a lot of time quietly sitting around listening to other people talk. I don't know that there's like a fundamental uh, childhood fantasy that this ties into. There's also some concern for my very prudish daughter. There's concern that there were glimpses of private parts as well. (laughs) Of course. Uh, Well, I mean, she does get to hang out with seals who are, Mm -hmm. are very cool, you know. Although, True, but they don't talk or sing. Yeah, you know, and you, and you not, don't want to get too close not very to them either. Personable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's she doesn't get to pet the seal. Like given the obsession you right now, that's, <laughs> you know, do video games let you pet the dog? It just the story like give you a companion that you can hang out with. Like we're all looking for connection, and she doesn't really get to make a connection to those seals. She gets to see somebody else that's made a connection to them, and uh, like even the kid who's made a connection to them, they just kind of cut him off cold at the end. It's, <laughs> It's actually a little brutal. Yeah. But uh, like my history with this movie is essentially – I was exposed to John Sayles in college and through Passionfish, I believe. And I didn't make a huge connection with it or with him at the time. And when Lone Star came out, that movie instantly skyrocketed to my all-time top ten list. I found it phenomenally moving. And I immediately went back and just started to fill in my John Sayles filmography. But this one left me a little cold. Again, I, I couldn't quite connect to it. And rewatching it this time, I feel like the first time I was looking for something maybe a little more like a conventional fairy tale. And it wasn't until rewatching it this time that I started to see all of the historical elements that shape the story, like all of the little reference to World War II just being over and there being kind of a family boom starting up and the like the loss of Gaelic language and Irish culture and the oppression of the English and just all of these little historical elements that didn't mean as much to me when I was younger and, and knew less about the world. I feel like this is a movie that you kind of need to be old enough to have a grounding in history to really appreciate a lot of the things that it's saying. 
It helps for sure. I mean, I think you can kind of connect to it as just a family story as, uh, you know, and, and there are elements here involving this child and her missing brother. And I mean, there, there are things that you can kind of connect to on that very base level. But yeah, all of these other historical details, you know, give it a richness that could definitely miss you and certainly would miss, again, children, <laughs> but I guess young adults as well. There's also a degree to which it's a story about a girl who loses her mother and then effectively loses her father. And by the end of the film, she's kind of become a mother. She's a 10 year old, but she's taking care of a smaller child and like rocking him and holding him and feeding him. And that also, I don't know how many 10 year olds, like a 10 year old girl might have a a vague fantasy of being a mother and uh, a wife someday, but like immediately (laughs) that's kind of a, a, a tall order. I would think. Yeah, I think like to really feel the happily ever after of this fairy tale, you kind of have to buy into what the story is saying as far as the connection to the island and to nature and to family is being the ultimate goal, you know, and you have to buy into the idea that a 10 year old cares about that. And I think the film does a pretty good job setting that up in Fiona's family situation with with her mother and father specifically. But, you know, I mean, like the big triumphant montage of this movie is them, like we said, thatching roofs and sweeping floors (laughs) and doing housework, you know, like it's not to go back to the Black Stallion comparison, like, you know, it's not a fantasy that a lot of children would hold, which I guess is another strike against considering this uh, children's movie versus a adult movie that happens to focus on children. But uh, I will say I did really like the fixing up the island montage. <laughs> like it spoke to like the HGTV viewer in me, I guess, mm. <laughs> but a more authentic version of that, you know. It's kind of funny to me that they're all pining for kind of a more austere life than right. they have already. <laughs> like, Back like when people kind of slept a... with the cows in the house. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like they already live what would be a fairly challenging environment, and they're kind of bummed that they're not completely isolated from every from humanity. I mean, there's a very strong feeling here of the old ways are the best ways, Mm -hmm. you know, going back to tradition, going back to abandoning your education, if it means giving up your language, your your natal language and your culture, even if that means working as a laborer for the rest of your life, like that whole flashback story fits a little oddly in with the rest of the story. But it is kind of fundamentally about tradition is better than modernity. Tradition is better than education. Tradition is better than any form of like luxury or success. It's like working hard for a living is better than <laughs> than being comfortable ever. And that's kind of, uh, again, like not a fantasy I think many people hold. But there is kind of an appeal in terms of connecting with nature, you know, the kind of simple, tactile, experience of you know working the land and the sea and and having those connections i mean it, it, this doesn't strike me as like a reactionary film in any way or a conservative film in some way where it's rejecting modernity in that sense i think it's really more about celebrating nature and myth and the kind of connections that people can have with their environment and the fish the, the fish are so fresh you're not gonna get that <laughs> kind of uh, uh, fresh, fresh fish on inland 
Yeah. But you're also not going to have meaningful work. To the degree that there's a threat in this movie, it's the threat that the grandfather is going to have to leave the sea and won't be able to work the sea anymore. They're going to have to live inland with townies. Mm -hmm. Like that's the big, it's like Kiki's delivery service, more or less. There's not a villain. There's just kind of a, a sad downturn where somebody may not get everything they want. And well, also, uh, what is he going to do inland? I mean, he, he is a fisherman, you know, that's and it comes from a family of fishermen. Yeah, exactly. He'd be forced to abandon the thing that gives him li- his life meaning. Mm-hmm. And part of that is his connection to the sea and his connection to his family and his connection to his history. You know, this is a film that cares very much about a lot of different forms of history, a lot of different forms of uh, like culture and connection to the past. Also, not a big childhood fantasy, reading up on history. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I'm just broaching something without really having any expertise to speak to it, or nor do I think any of us do. But the fact that this is situated within Irish history, Irish post-World War II history, like I certainly don't know the specifics of it, but we get in this film, the evacuation. And that I think is presented to us as a traumatic schism in the culture of of this place, you know? So I think if you kind of look at it as a traumatic dividing line, it's easier to understand impulse to return to the old ways uh, while forsaking modernity. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Ireland was neutral during World War II, which I don't think is something that the country is particularly proud of. But it still was a dividing line for them in terms of just as it was for the, the rest of the world. I mean, there's, there's, there's pre-war and there's post-war. And these ways were going to disappear, and that was, you know, accelerated by the coming of the the post-war world. So, I mean, we've kind of talked a bunch about the historical and realistic elements of this story. What do you think about the mythical elements? (laughs) For a story that's a fable about shape changers, there's actually not a whole lot of magic in this film. (laughs) And I'm wondering kind of what you feel that the Selkie angle brings to this story. And the magic is kind of gross. I mean, the, the <laughs> yeah. crawling out of the seal skin is, is presented as – it's not Cronenbergian, but it's it's certainly yeah. uh, not just sort of this you know, ghoulish process. Yeah. Well, and I mean, even the most like mystical moment of the film, which is that, that transformation, is presented in a very, quote unquote, realistic way. You know, there's no like – magic sparkles, you know, it's like actual stripping off of skin. Um, And it's done in a very practical way. Like there's no quote unquote special effects being used there. You know, I think it's just a matter of costuming and framing. Honestly, one of the most mystical elements of this film to me was Jamie's Cradle. Just the design of it, you know, yeah. it's a lovely like visual reference point to turn to again and again, especially like bobbing in the sea or like the shot of little baby Jamie, like riding his cradle out to sea. Like, you know, there's nothing, again, magical happening there, but it's just such an odd, unnatural kind of image. And the cradle itself is such a mystical looking cradle <laughs> you know like like they were talking about a cradle and the first time i saw it i'm like what is that i was like oh that's <laughs> apparently that's the cradle you know so like to the extent that the mythical is in this film it's just done in a very natural unshowy way and part of the naturalism of the magic in this is that it's not romanticized mm. uh, and that that extends past 
she doesn't turn into a human by spinning around three times with a shower of glitter. <laughs> it's like a process of giving birth, you know, sliding out of yeah. the birth call. <laughs> but then once she does slide out of the birth call, there's not really a sense of romanticism. Like the Selkie myth has always been uh, like heavily shading into rape fantasy yeah. <laughs> and certainly into like control and, and ownership fantasy, like loss of loss of freedom, loss of self. What we see in this, like, it doesn't ever really feel like the sulky woman is excited to go away with him. It doesn't feel like she's terrified either. She feels she looks bewildered um, pretty much throughout all of their interactions until she she sort of gets used to it. But there's still never a sense of love there. There's never a sense of uh, deep emotional connection. And so they kind of interject this sense of trauma and grief into the backstory of this family. And then that's mirrored sort of in the way there are all of these, these rumors about the family, you know, the dark ones of the family who no nobody speaks of. It all ends up feeling a lot more like scandal and depression than about, uh, oh, and by the way, we have uh, mythical ancestors <laughs> and a magical connection and maybe secret powers over the land and nature. Now it all feels a little ugly and a little tawdry. Well, and I think that it kind of extends to some extent to the way seals are presented to us in this film. Like you, you talked about, you know, the expression on her face. Like to me, it just seemed like she was doing an impression of a seal, you know, this sort of like <laughs> wide eyed. It would be a blank expression, except you sense that there's something deep happening behind the eyes there. And we do get a lot of very nice looking nature photography of seals. And, you know, they're cute, but they're not like in any way anthropomorphized in, in this film. You know, they have this sense of being very removed and stoic and unknowable. To follow you around, though. <laughs> you question their ability to take care of Jamie, though. <laughs> right. Yeah, for they're, sure. They're, especially when it's cold. That poor kid. He's got, it's, it's got, it looks so cold there. And they're he's, wet he's short, all the time. shirtless and the water's got to be, looks freezing. Uh but I guess it's not the, like they're nice, warm cows. You know, they're perpetually no. like wet, sodden creatures. Yeah. It certainly does raise some questions. Not to body shame uh, <laughs> the, the kid the kid playing Jamie, the, the three-year-old boy or whatever, four-year-old boy. <laughs> but I like – Fiona is clearly very thin and, uh, you know, kind of wispy. And then he's kind of seal-like. He's got like a little belly and <laughs> he's got he's just, like these, these fat little legs he runs around on too. You know, they, they, they kind of extend the seal metaphor uh, that much further. Well, and implying that he's well cared for to go to, go to yeah. your, your, your previous point. Like, you know, he's not wasting away at sea. You know, he's, no. he's clearly well fed and happy. And They play um, with him inside with yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. on a board. Right. <laughs> I was gonna say, how did how the hell did he get that like comfortable warm layer of blubber subsisting on raw fish? But I guess the seals do, and they like all have their protective uh, layer of fat. It's something that the film is probably well advised not to detail. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna lie to her some details, or else, or else the magic will will uh, disappear. Correct. Yes. That said, the the sequence towards the end with the seals is one of the film's most magical sequences. Again, without glitter and glamour and romanticism. But you see seals doing things that after the rest of the film, where there are, you know, physical mock-ups of seals, like stand-ins for seals, or what's clearly like nature photography stitched together, you see seals doing like you see seals threatening that child in a way that's actually pretty convincing and uh, taking off with his, uh, his little ship and interacting in a way that looks 
awfully like they're putting their heads together to decide about something. Mm-hmm. Much like with the Black Stallion, like the nature photography in this film, which I understand was largely done by uh, Jeff Goodman, who's a British wildlife photographer, uh, rather than Has- Haskell Wexler, who shot the rest of the film. It's really key to the story. I think the seals are like perfectly anthropomorphized here in the sense that like you do get this quality where that you can see that they're thinking that they're acting as a group that they're making decisions which are which are very human things to do and it's just enough you know but it isn't magic and sparkle and glitters and seals talking which is of course great but it's enough to make it seem like the line between seal and human is thin enough to where there can be a transference from one to the other and also that the two things can work in harmony you know because ultimately you know the story of this child is going to be a child who is raised by both humans and seals and i like that the seals are kind of always presented as a collective like they don't have individual personalities there's not like mommy seal you know or so you avoid that sort of like sidekick thing uh they're just like this collective force of nature and i think that's why they're effective as a magical force that still feels very realistic (laughs) They're also just mysterious. I mean, you can write a story for yourself about how Fiona's family is tied to the Selkies and they share blood with this group of seals in some way. And the seals clearly wanted this child for a reason and took him. And they apparently have some sort of symbiosis with the seagulls that always appear when they're around and who like help them by driving people off so they can steal Jamie. And they seem to consciously decide when it's time to return Jamie home, when they feel that people are properly returning to Rowan Inish, returning to the land. Like, you can draw a lot of conclusions for yourself, but you never get enough anthropomorphizing about them to really understand why they do what they do. You know, it's all very primal, Mm. um, without a lot of wordy explanations. Nobody sits down and explains to you like, well, traditionally, like, this is what the Selkies want, and therefore they will behave in such a wise. Uh, You just you kind of much like watching the weather, you can sort of draw conclusions based on your experience with it as the people in this film do, but you can't necessarily predict it, you certainly can't control it. Yeah, and they seem like an extension. Not that there's some kind of just you know seal force. Uh, <laughs> sorry for the pun, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, but but they're, they're extension to the land itself and 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 what the island wants of the, of the family. Exactly. What do you make of the music in the film? The music here was composed by Mason Daring, who's a longtime partner of John Sales. Has, has done a lot of work with him, uh, but this is him working in kind of a new mode traditional Irish music, essentially. And I'm curious how you whether you felt it added to the story, whether it's um, kind of forwardness uh, distracted. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think I found it a little heavy handed. I mean, it's not bad. It's nice music, but it just doesn't feel particular. It doesn't feel natural the way so much else in the film feels natural. It feels like it's been layered on uh, to sort of sell the Irishness of this film a bit more. I was going to say, it's not Irish enough for you, right? That's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I liked it. I mean, it is a lot, but it does to me, you know, it's kind of, it, it feels right for the film. Even though I can kind of picture an alternate version, I think that's kind of what you're talking about with a little bit more of a restrained, somber instead of the up-tempo Irish music through the whole thing. But um, I just kind of take it for what it is. It was fine by me because I specifically like this kind of music. There's mm-hmm. kind of a 
ridiculous story about like my my arrival at the AV club was after years of being mocked for my like love of Irish music. Um, when our old editor, Stephen Thompson, initially, when I interviewed, uh, he asked what kind of music I listened to. And <laughs> literally, the closest I could come to some kind of like mainstream thing I thought he would have heard of was Clanod. <laughs> so he uh, apparently, <laughs> apparently talked to you guys about like, what the, what the hell are we going to, are we going to have her covering the Clanod beat? <laughs> um, do you, so, uh, uh, Stephen, do you like the Dubliners? <laughs> the, the, the open position at that time was the Chicago editor position which was a position where you really needed it on music that was the most important thing yeah, <laughs> yeah kind of... which it 100 was not advertised as uh, yeah. i i applied for a job that was uh looking for a an editor and like processor of text and i walked into a job that was essentially local music reporter so <laughs> it was it was a mismatch and uh, i did not get hired for that position and it all worked out we, but, didn't, we didn't forget about you, though. Yeah, I, I worked with you as a freelancer for many years. But it, uh, there is music in this that reminds me of Clonod. There's music in this that reminds me of Altan, the, which is another like favorite band of mine in this mode. And it just it felt very homey to me. So it didn't feel overforced, but it felt like music that I listened to by choice. I do agree, though, that it's not – it never feels diegetic. It never mm-hmm. feels like part of the story. It feels like somebody kind of yelling yelling the setting at you. Well, and because without it, I feel like this movie's natural mode is a quiet one. Like like you said, it's not a – the music isn't diegetic. Like, they're not in settings where there would be a lot of music or a lot of noise that's other than, you know, nature sounds. And I kind of wish that, you know, given the story's focus on – you know, nature in the old ways, it had maybe focused a little more on what that sounds like, rather than laying on traditional sounding Irish music to sell it. Like I think of something like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, for example, which is also sort of on a an isolated, you know, piece of land and has very little music, save for a, one very impactful music scene. But for the most part, its sound design is more about amplifying the quietness and the way nature sounds in that environment. Yeah, I can actually push back in the direction of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, because given how much this film foregrounds storytelling, and the tradition of storytelling and listening to stories and discovering your own history, um, and the, the threads that affected you through stories, it's interesting that there isn't really that element around music. Like we, mm-hmm. we just as well could have done the portrait of a lady on fire thing and had a scene at a pub or at a local gathering where this music was being played and still gotten it into the story, but as a part of it. Well, I'll say this though. This is the music you would hear. So when we're, we're telling you this story, right? <laughs> it, it kind of, kind of brings that to me that kind of frames it that way. Like if, if you were in a, in a pub somewhere and someone was telling you the story, this is what you, what you hear in sure. the background. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to wrap up with uh, Scott. You implied that you had a whole series of thoughts about how how this works into John Sayles, you know, his themes, his interests. Is there more to it that we haven't covered? Well, no, I don't know. That that, that was the thing at the, at the time. I thought it was a, a huge departure. You know, he'd been doing so many social dramas. I mean, that was kind of the core, you know, and films about America. I mean, film like Lone Star or film like, uh, well, I'm, I'm trying to get, maybe I don't want to get the dates wrong here because I'm trying Lone Star uh, was right after this, but I, I, I will yeah. say this. He was doing also doing movies about communities. Yeah. Uh, for, you know, Mate One, even Eight Men, Eight Men Out, City of Hope, Passion Fish will be a smaller community, but this is kind of an extension of that kind of uh, approach as well. 
Right. It, his thing was was still, you know, intimate, small scale, independent drama. So it really wasn't quite as much of a departure as I thought. But you think like, well, he's going to Ireland and he's making a, you know, quote unquote, a children's, you know, fable. That is not what I expect a John Sayles film to be like. But watching it now, it really did feel not as removed from what he'd done before and and um you know and it has had a lot of the strengths that it, uh, you know i associate with him and a lot of just the decency and the sincerity and the good feeling i mean that kind of animates a lot of his work i mean you always the thing about sales is you always feel like there's a just a big-hearted human being behind the camera i mean that, that's part of the experience of watching his movies and uh that certainly carries over here One other aspect of this that I hadn't really thought about watching it, but that came up when I was reading up on interviews that he's given about this film, is that one of the things that he sees as stretching throughout his movies and connecting this with his other films is just the way language is used, the way people in a small, isolated community or a very specific work-focused or sports-focused or what-have-you-focused movie have their own language, their own accents, their own dialects, their own ways of speaking. And he overtly compared the Irish accents and slang in this to the West Virginia, like, patois in Meituan or, like, uh, in other films where, you know, the Lone Star accent in Texas, just the way that people have very different ways of speaking when they speak to people in their group. I thought that was an interesting point of comparison. It also seems like this was... It kind of set a pattern for me. It might have been a more of a departure at the time, but a lot of his later films are going to different places. Uh, you know, sort of the unnamed country and and Men with Guns in well, Alaska's in the United States, but it, it feels like another country the way it's filmed in Limbo uh, and so on from there. So you know, it, maybe this is kind of a maybe it's kind of a turning point in some ways as well. Well, we may have a chance to talk more about uh, some of John Sayles' specific interests when we bring this film into conversation with Wolfwalkers in part two of this conversation. But for now, we're going to wrap up this discussion of Secret of Rowan Inish for the moment and move on to something else. Last time around, we skipped the feedback section in order to bring you a special segment on Scott's extensive required viewing list for 2020. We'll forgive you for not writing in with feedback this week because we just assume you're buried under the requirements of that list, and we'll get back to actual feedback soon because we did get some letters about our pairing of Citizen Kane and Netflix's Mank, but I really couldn't resist taking the chance to take another week off and discussing another topic near and dear to my heart. We won't get into Wolf Walkers until next week, but I can tell you in advance that it's just a phenomenally beautiful animated movie. And it stands out for the way it doesn't look like anything else in an animation landscape that can be pretty homogenous. In honor of Wolfwalkers, I asked everyone to turn up with at least one favorite unconventional animated film, something that goes beyond the Disney character designs that dominated American animation for so many decades and the glossy CGI look that's becoming standard now. So uh, hit me up, guys. Like, what what stands out for you in the world of animation the way Wolfwalkers does? Well, I was actually inspired by Wolfwalkers and specifically by Tom Moore for what uh, I'm going to talk about, because he and Nora Toomey have mentioned that this, this film is sort of one of the inspiration points behind them starting a Cartoon Saloon. And that film is uh, Richard Williams' unfinished film, The Thief and the Cobbler, which those of you who were Dissolve readers may recall a large feature we ran on it as part of our Who Framed Roger Rabbit movie of the 
the week discussion because Richard Williams also handled the animation on uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And that was the first time I kind of became familiar with this film and, and watched it. And I thought of it here, it's unconventional in a lot of ways, but it's also traditional in a lot of ways in that it is traditionally animated in terms of being hand-drawn. But nothing else about it is conventional from its origin story, which spans three-ish decades to just the level of detail, almost to an insane degree that Williams put into it. It's animated at 24 frames per second, which is astounding. And looking at it today, it really shows. And as far as looking at it today, this is where I have to note that this is an unfinished film, but there is a pretty good version of it out there. Garrett Gilcrest's Recobble cut, which is uh, easily found on YouTube and the and the internet, and is kind of based off of Williams's work print. And it, I'd say it's probably like the current version. There's been several recobbled cuts at this point. The current version that you can watch, I'd say, reads is like maybe 85 to 90 percent done. But there's you know these little flashes where the animation drops out and it's pencil drawings, you know, so it's sort of a cool experience to watch if you're an animation fan, just seeing how uh, how this unfinished animated film works. But beyond that, it's just a beautiful film to look at some of the sequences, especially the um, the thief escaping the uh, the castle sequence is just kind of mind blowing to watch. And, you know, speaking of Disney and uh, animation that gets away from Disney, it is hard not to see the uh, similarities to Aladdin in this film. And there's sort of, it's assumed that uh, a fair bit of Disney's Aladdin is sort of drawing on the work that uh, Williams did in The Thief and the Cobbler, at least as far as some character designs go. You know, as far as story goes, it's kind of all over the place. It's more a movie of set pieces, of eye-popping set pieces. The dialogue kind of goes in and out. The dialogue was sort of the last bit that never really got finessed in any uh, satisfying way. But just in terms of the art of animation, I think it's sort of an essential thing to check out if you haven't. Have you all seen it or some version of it? I haven't. I wanted to check it out when we ran that article, but then, you know, things got away from me. But this is a a new inspiration to go check it out. (laughs) I mean, it's... You really can just kind of like watch specific sequences. It's not necessarily like you need to watch the whole thing to understand what's happening. You know, it's really, to my mind, more of a visual experience than anything else. But also the the recobbled cut, I think, is like just over 90 minutes. So it's not like a hmm. huge investment either. I've not I've not seen it myself. So uh... very curious clips of it online I, I it keeps coming back up for me because it's just one of those phenomena that if you talk to somebody in animation like somebody who's a professional animator they will almost certainly bring it up and wax rhapsodic about it it just like kind of seems Moore. like like <laughs> tom moore exactly it, it seems like there's a a barrier to entry as a professional animator that you're not allowed to do it unless you've seen this film yeah. I mean, it does kind of to go back to our, our Citizen Kane conversation from a couple of weeks ago. Is it, I, I can definitely see where it gets sort of like a, a homework stigma attached to it, but you shouldn't let that stop you. Like, it is a very pleasurable thing to watch. All right. Well, since none of you have seen it, I guess we won't uh, dwell on it anymore, but consider this my invitation to check it out. Uh, who, who wants to go next? Keith, I'm looking at you. 
<laughs> I'll invite you to check out a film I covered also for the Zov in, in my old Laser Age column, which is called Fantastic Planet from uh, uh-huh. uh, Tasha's Chuckling Knowingly, a 1973 animated film from France and Czechoslovakia. Uh, but the creative force uh, behind it is, is French, specifically a director named René Laloux, and who did a couple other things, but this is the, the film that he will be remembered for. Uh, it is a uh, science fiction film, uh, sort of a uh, broadly allegorical science fiction film about uh, a planet in which there are uh, giant uh, humanoids who enslave little humanoids. And it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of, you can you can fill in your own sort of um, master-slave style relationship as to what it's about, but it's got this sort of wonderful, fanciful, but also kind of scary uh, European science fiction art uh, that you associated with with uh, Mobius, who who the director later worked with on another project, and uh, you know it's it's certainly far more restrained, but it's kind of got the, the sort of the uh, uh, heavy metal kind of vibe to it as, as well. It also has a wonderful uh, psychedelic score to it that that, that grounds it firmly in the, in the in the early seventies, uh, but in a way that kind of kind of makes it all the better for it. I, I enjoyed this film a lot. It is a um, not necessarily the t- most tightly plotted. Uh, piece of uh, storytelling you'll ever find, but uh, I think I think the visuals kind of bring you along anyway. And it is also short, so but you know maybe pair it with a thief and the cobbler for a double feature. Tasha, you've seen this one? Oh yeah, I wrote about it. Uh, I think maybe for Sci-Fi Weekly back mm. when I was writing for them. Um, one of the the many reissues of it. That's one of those films where you can watch that strictly as a kind of a psychedelic fantasy, like as a head movie kind of experience. Or you can read up on the history of Czechoslovakia and Mm. uh, its various owners and particularly the kind of uh, political control through propaganda um, that was enforced on it. And then go back and rewatch this story and you can see how it's one of those projects that was cultural commentary being made about its own time through science fiction in a, a fairly clever way, basically to get around the censors, to talk about political issues of the era without appearing to do so. Uh, it's a pretty rich and rewarding text while also just being a very strange and interesting science fiction film. Did you say Czechoslovakia, Tasha? Because I have uh, something from Czechoslovakia. <laughs> and that's uh, Jan Svankmeyer's Alice. Y- Jan Svankmeyer is a Czech animator who specializes in stop motion animation. And uh, I think Alice was his first feature-length film he'd made many shorts but he's he made films like uh, he's made features like faust and conspirators of pleasure and little otic it takes him a while to make the features i think the shorts are a little more common and i think that might have been my first like exposure to him was seeing him on like a there was more common to see like touring shows of animated shorts that was a thing when i was in college <laughs> there's a lot of those going around so i think i probably encountered him first that way but with Alice, you know, the, the thing about stop motion is that it's associated with, you know, meticulous work. And that meticulous work is really about trying to l- limit the amount of herky-jerkiness that is naturally going to be a part of stop motion, of having to move things very slowly and painstakingly over time. And it's not, I, I would not say that Swankmeyer is a sloppy animator by any stretch of the imagination, but he's also someone who uses the disconcerting nature of stop motion to his advantage. And with, with Alice, which is his version of Alice in Wonderland, uh, with the Wonderland part conspicuously missing, he is taking a lot of household items that a child like Alice might find in her house or in her room, which is a very 
scary place on its own. Things like threads and pins and doll parts and things like that and constructing a narrative around that and constructing a world around that out of stop motion. And um, it's a film I, I wish I could remember is, you know, it's one of those that you remember in almost like flashes of imagery more than stretches of storytelling. It's not that kind of movie. It's more of a, this, an experience, but I think it's a really powerful evocation of the Lewis Carroll in the sense that I've always felt that that story was scary. <laughs> I was always scared, very scared of as a, as a child and, and even as a grown up, even my, my children are kind of wary of, of going into that, into that realm. And, um, and I don't think there's any, been any version of Alice in Wonderland that is quite as disconcerting and scary and uh, inspired really as, uh, as Funkmeyers. So yeah, uh, I was going to say, it's something you remembered in flashes of, of your of your nightmares <laughs> because exactly. it, is, it is a very unsettling film. And, and I was going to warn that mine was a little uh, short on humor, but I think I think Alice may be uh, completely devoid of humor, right? It, yeah, it's a, it's a definitely for adults. I would say, mm. <laughs> though he, though his films are not are not humorless. I mean, when you get to like Conspirators of Pleasure is is very funny, darkly funny, but very funny. Yeah, I guess Alice kind of has a dark whimsy. To yeah, it, but uh, still more disturbing than oh yeah um, for sure uh, more disturbing than amusing. Yeah, it is. I put that movie up there with uh, the Eraserhead Baby in <laughs> just the uh-huh. realm of nightmare images that stick with you in a a tactile way that you can almost taste on the back of your mouth uh, for the rest of your life. Like you you watch it once and then it's just gonna like live in your DNA from then on, uh, which is definitely not a knock against it but yeah you know be warned that this film will uh take up residence in a little box on the back of your head if you watch it uh what, what about you tasha do you have anything from czechoslovakia i i don't in fact i i'm having a hard time like even now i'm sitting here with a bunch of different windows open and i'm screen sharing so you can see them all and you can you can see my indecision drawn upon the screen uh so to speak like there are just there's so many films. I was going to come in uh, like a little Wait, conventional Care Bears movie. Am I saying that correctly? Or? <laughs> You're not. I'm going to close that one. Okay. Uh, the same thing with the My Little Pony movie. <laughs> um, I was going to come in conventional and talk about uh, the Rankin Bass movie, The Last Unicorn, and how well it holds up for me, and how well it reflects just like still one of the most lyrical novels uh, I've ever. I've ever read, but then I started thinking like, am I, am I passing up the chance to talk about uh, Leica's stop motion and in Coraline? Am I passing up the chance to talk about, I lost my body on Netflix, which is this, the French movie about a severed hand trying to crawl its way back to its, its owner, uh, which is just a really deep and, and complicated emotional experience of a movie with a surprising amount of comedy on top of it. I <laughs> was feeling that we were like leaving out the entire world of anime I, and that oh, made me feel This is guilty. the stealthiest like mass recommendation. Yeah, you you said you said you said started to say world of anime and I thought you were going to say world of tomorrow films cuz uh, I I can't believe we've gotten through here and not talked about Don Hertzfeld. True. Uh, but yeah, yeah, there's just there's there's so much that we could be talking about. Or the about. triplets of Belleville, that was going to be my original one. Yeah, you had originally typed that as your uh your pick and I I feel like bad that we're not talking about uh, Sylvian Chomet at all because Triplets of Belleville is definitely something that anybody who likes this podcast and hasn't seen already should check out. And I would actually say that his follow-up uh The Illusionist 
while not nearly as narratively interesting as Triplets of Belleville and a lot more like laid back tonally is just visually it's a remarkable film and maybe maybe the closest we've come to a, a Tom Moore style setting of a world that's just in beautiful colors so I I don't know there's there's so many things I could talk about uh, animation is a uh, a passion of mine and I could go on for days I'm gonna have to default back to one of my all-time favorite animated films that not enough people have seen and that's Michelle Ocelot's Kirikou and the Sorceress um, which is a French film about an African fable and uh, like so many of the stories we're talking about today it's a it's a fantasy it's a fairy tale it's a fable it's richly and heavily influenced by local culture Ocelot spent a lot of time uh, living in Africa and he kind of drew on a bunch of different uh, folklore fables, like no specific one uh, tribe or tradition or country that he was drawing from, but a, a bunch of different areas. He kind of coalesced it all into the story about a little boy who more or less becomes a superhero to his tribe, literally the moment that he's born. The movie start, starts with him talking to his mother from within the womb and demanding to be born. And she says, a, a child that can talk to his mother from inside the womb can give birth to himself so he does and then he's kind of on his own after that he has to save his people from this sorceress that's plaguing them and it's sort of this episodic uh fantasy story that's just really about the work that you do to help other people regardless of whether they appreciate you for it regardless of whether they love you for it regardless of whether they can see you for it um, and it's just, it's a touching film. The piece that I wrote about it for The Dissolve is one of my favorite all-time pieces that I've ever written. I went back and revisited that a few months ago and was like, I'd, I'd be really sad if this website ever went away. I, I really want to hang on to uh, writing like this. But that's one of those pieces that I wrote just in a fit of passion for a film that I love because it's so different. It's so colorful and strange and taken from experience and, and taken from a culture that we don't spend enough time in. And I think it's just lovely. So yeah, uh, Kiriko and the Sorceress, all-time favorite. I liked it too. I, I never even heard of it until you uh, brought it in as a movie of the week uh, topic and, and uh, I enjoyed watching it. Yeah, it, it is. It's one of those uh, long tail movies that I find people coming around on my social media from time to time to say, you know, thank you for recommending this movie years and years ago. Uh, and it never fails to delight me when a new person discovers the movie. Is it 12 year old friendly? Uh, as long as your 12 year old isn't uh, giggly about naked bodies, like there are a lot of naked bodies, um, obviously not in a sexual way, but in a like the women don't wear shirts and uh, mm. the, the infant runs around naked. So if you have a small child that objects to the nudity and secret of Rowan Inish, Keith, <laughs> you're going to have a child that's uh, very offended by the, the teeny tiny genitals on display in this movie. And Superman, too. Superman was an issue for a fleeting shot of uh, young Clark Kent's uh, uh, bare body. Very, very young Clark Kent's, uh, inoffensively young Clark Kent's bare body. Well, that's that's this, this really went to what, a place I, I did not expect to go. That's really what ties together all the movies that we recommend here at the Next Picture Show. Uh, no, no, it really doesn't. No, extremely no, infant no, nudity. No, 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 nothing that, none of that happens. This is, a, this is a perfectly fine. We're not so, going to get QAnon people like attacking our show for this. Oh no! 
Uh, so that's not going to be our next segment in place of feedback. Favorite infant nudity movies. Favorite that. infant nudity scenes. Well, if you want to uh, write a letter to us about how we're offensive monsters, you shouldn't be talking about this. Or if you want to write us the letter about how uh, Americans are weird and prudish about their own bodies. Like either way, we would like to return to conventional feedback segments fairly soon. And we're calling on you to help us do that. Please share your thoughts, recommendations, and topics you'd like to hear us discuss by leaving a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at a very different kind of shapeshifter and different forms of loss and hard work in Tom Moore's Wolfwalkers. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, don't leave your seal skin just lying around. Like who's, Who knows who's going to pick that up and walk off with it? Bye.